Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It's great to be with you today. I, I love Cornerstone Church, and I'm, I'm so thankful for you for so many different reasons. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for, on a real practical note, the hospitality you've shown to my uh, teenage son there who's with us this morning. Uh, he's been participating in your youth group and has really been blessed by that, and so thank you for, for that kindness. Uh, I've been thankful uh, by, uh, as Rob mentioned, the friendship with your pastor, uh, his counsel. His, he's a model to me of faithfulness, of someone who loves his church, loves Christ, loves his family, and um, I'm so blessed by that relationship. And of course, I'm so thankful for you as a church for your faithful, ongoing support of us and our ministry, both through prayer, both through participation and things like our recent coat drive that we just finished up. Thank you for the generous donations, and it's a joy to think of children in foster care or at risk of entering foster care who will be warmed this winter because of some of the coats that you've uh, donated. So thank you for that um, and also your financial partnership. You know, when we started a couple of years ago working on raising support uh, to turn Fostering Hope into a full-time venture, uh, your pastor was one of the first groups of pastors and friends that I reached out to, and I was so encouraged because immediately he got the vision of what we were after uh, as an organization. He saw how our faith in Jesus does indeed compel us and equip us to care for children in our communities in need of families and how it's really in line with the kingdom work. Um, and so I'm so thankful for his uh, partnership, his support, and leading you as a church to, to catch that vision as well. Uh, thank you for that. He did ask me to, to update you just a bit on the ministry. Uh, we exist to mobilize the Christian community to raise up and support foster and adoptive families by creating sustainable cultures within their church communities. We believe that caring for children without families is a natural overflow of our own experience of God's love. In fact, Scripture says that caring for children in need of homes is one of the authenticating marks that we've experienced God's adopting love in our own lives. The logic kind of goes like this. Since Jesus has entered into our brokenness and affliction to care for us at our greatest point of need, we who've experienced that grace are compelled and empowered by it to extend that same kind of grace to other people and their affliction and their brokenness, including very specifically this category, uh, this biblical category that oftentimes is called the fatherless or the orphan, in the case of foster youth, children in need of homes. And so we really believe that caring for children in need of homes in, in our communities is not something that's really optional for the Christian community at large. It's not a trend that we should really consider. It's a non-negotiable mark of Christian faithfulness. It's a fruit of God's people as we come to be exposed to that need in our backyard. And so that's why we exist, to help engage and then equip the Christian community towards that end. And so our vision, simply put, is that every child in foster care would have a family to care for them. We call it Project Zero because we believe that zero children should be waiting for a family who cares for them. So we're trying to help flip that script so that instead of children waiting for families to willing to open their heart and home and care for them, they're actually families raised up, willing and able, but waiting, waiting because the need is being so adequately met. Um, and so that's, that's our, our mission, that's our vision, and we're excited about what God is doing. There's so much I could share in terms of updates, so many good things that have been happening. It was about a year ago that we transitioned from uh, what was originally just a side ministry to a part-time ministry to last November, I raised enough support to make the transition to full-time ministry. And so it's been about a year. And during that part-time to full-time phase, you spend a lot of time considering how we could most effectively engage the Christian community and create a model that would meet the need of more families and help reduce the turnover rate, but also provide bridges for the Christian community to be good news to a very broken system. And so we really developed a model, a working model, that we started to implement this year uh, in full force in 2018. We hired our first staff member who also raised support to join us in January, Mike Brown, who's our director of programs. He lives up in the Boston area. And over this year, we've been basically looking at it as a proof of concept, beginning to implement this model and see how does this work, 
uh, in terms of engaging the Christian community. And we've been so encouraged by what God has been doing. Early on this year, it became very evident that God was doing something really unusual and unique up north of Boston in the Merrimack Valley, um, North Shore region, and to some degree the metro uh, Boston area. So we decided we should really focus our attention and resources, especially in that area with our limited capacity. We're still working in Rhode Island, of course, and in other regions of Massachusetts, and our long-term vision is New England. But that seemed to be where God was especially working, so that's where we, we followed his lead and really have zeroed in. And it's been such a blessing to see fruit from this endeavor. And this is part of the fruit of your investment in us, as you've given us uh, faithfully month after month over the course of the last year and a half or two. Uh, some of the fruit that we're seeing is to your account. Um, and so very quickly, I'll just say that the Christian community is being stirred up to see these children in need of families through the eyes of God, to hear their cry with his ears, to move toward them with God's hands and feet to love and serve them. Uh, we have about 50 churches now in Massachusetts that we're connected to in some way, to a greater or lesser degree, that are wanting to engage this community. We have two sub-networks up in the northern area, Fostering Hope Merrimack Valley and Fostering Hope North Shore, that we're now networking with churches to help them together serve this uh, community. And as this happens, families are beginning to raise their hand and say, you know what, we will receive children into our families, care for them physically, emotionally, spiritually. And it's been a blessing to see. I could give you a lot of examples of some of those families. For time's sake, I won't. But as that's happening, we're also seeing the church grow in discipleship as the church is raising up a model of wrapping around those foster adoptive families to provide care and support for them, which is so vital for families serving well in this way because there's a lot of unique stressors in uh, being a foster and adoptive family. And so we're seeing discipleship grow as Christians learn how to love in sacrificial ways for one another, the way we're called to as a community of faith. Another thing that's happening is we're seeing incredible bridges growing between the church community and a very needy foster care community. One of the things I've always believed about this mission is that we should, we should serve children in need of homes purely on a humanitarian basis, right? I mean, if there was a child outside your street who was clearly in need and, and tattered clothing, you would say, oh, I need to do something for them with no agenda. You would just want to serve them out of the overflow of God's love in your heart. So if there's a child in our backyard who needs families, we should be part of providing that family for them. But then we also realize that when you begin to serve children in need of families, it opens up relationships across the spectrum among our neighbors as an opportunity to serve and build good gospel relationships with so many people in our communities, from doctors and lawyers and judges and therapists and trauma specialists to DCYF-type employees and social workers and case aides and supervisors and early intervention specialists to biological families of children in foster care who are, who are also image bearers of God and are working for reunification with their children. And everyone in between, there's so many people that because we're engaging in this sector, we're starting to serve and build really incredible relationships with and seeing some really sweet fruit. There was a DCF employee up in Massachusetts just a few weeks ago who said, made this comment. She didn't say this cynically or negatively. She said, I've never seen so many Christians before. That was her comment. Because the Christian community is kind of bridging the gap into their territory to serve in so many a variety of ways, from service projects like the Coat Drive and other things going on, to opening up their family. And they're really hearing about what's happening among the Christian community. And it's creating opportunities for uh, real sweet ministry and all kinds of organic, real relationships in the context of, of Christians meeting one of our great societal needs, providing care for children in need of home. So God is stirring and working uh, in powerful ways. One other thing I'll add, um, and I don't want to take too much of my preaching time up here, uh, but another way we're bridging the gap is through our trauma-informed training initiative. We realized if we were going to call the Christian community to care for children from hard places, we really wanted to do everything we could to equip them with the tools to do it well. Because when children are impacted by trauma, it can lead to some challenging um, uh, needs in their life. And, but there's all kinds of uh, tools now that didn't exist even 10, 15 years ago. And so we've been trained in some really high-level trauma-informed care models. 
And we're using that to both cha- uh, train churches, children's ministry leaders, youth ministry leaders in these principles so that they can be a safe setting for kids to come in and, and uh, experience a maximum opportunity for hope and healing. But then also we're opening up to caregivers, people who are providing foster and adoptive care. And what we found is while we are primarily doing it for Christians within our network, it's being so well received that DCF is referring people from the broader community to our trainings. And so I think at the last major training we had, we had about 75 caregivers. About 40 to 50% of them had been referred by DCF. They're coming to the church setting in a, in a faithful church to receive high-level training in a faith context. And we're really bridging gap. I heard a DCF worker say recently, uh, did you hear, uh, I overheard basically her saying it secondhand, uh, did you hear about the faith-based, trauma-informed foster care movement that's happening up here? So the, the community is starting to get that we're in it for the long haul, we're taking it seriously, and they're actually sending people our way, which is creating all kinds of opportunities for a gospel witness as well. So... Be in prayer that as we continue to sow these seeds, we're very early in the process, um, and it's a tricky dance to, to dance with uh, working in this uh, system and, and trying to bridge this uh, gap. Um, so continue to pray, number one, that God would raise up families to care for these children that would lead to hope and healing for them at every level, and that as we do so, that we would truly be good news and, and, and um, communicate accurately God's love to this needy community. Um, that many would come to experience uh, God's love in a powerful way. Uh, So thank you for your support. If you have any other questions about some of the specifics about what God is doing, I'd love to meet with you, talk to you, email with you, uh, have a phone call, have coffee with you, and share more uh, about what God is doing uh, because it's some really cool things. All right, enough said on that. Let me uh, go ahead and pray one more time before we open up the word. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to be a God who is the father to the fatherless, the champion of the widow, the one who places the lonely in families. We know this not just by observation. We know this personally because when we were outside your family with no hope of entering in on our own, you, at great cost to yourself, sending your son created room in your family for us. And so we thank you for your adopting grace. And we pray now as we consider this incredible theme this morning that your spirit would open our eyes Refresh our hearts with the truth of how you have brought us into your family and what that means for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in his book, Children of the Living God, pastor and seminary professor Sinclair Ferguson recalls a grueling series of interviews that he went through early in his career when he was trying to land a particular teaching job. One of the interview sessions focused entirely on his spiritual condition. Now, can you imagine an interview like that, where for a couple hours the interviewers were just probing your spiritual life and walk and how you were doing spiritually? One of the interviewers during this session asked Sinclair this question, what terms would you use to describe yourself in relation to God? What terms would you use to describe yourself in relation to God? Well, Ferguson paused for a moment, and then he answered, as a servant. Servant would be the term I would use. And that makes sense, right? He's our creator, he's our king, and we are his servants indeed. But as he was saying those words, a realization regarding the nature of his relationship with God hit him like the proverbial ton of bricks, an insight that he had never personally experienced before to the degree that it hit him in that very moment. And so he quickly added to his answer, as a servant, the words, and yes, as a son. Now, Ferguson didn't get that job, but he didn't mind because according to his own testimony, for days and days after that interview, all that was echoing and re-echoing through his mind were those few words. And yes, as a son. Now, as a well-trained theologian, not to mention a longtime Christian, Ferguson certainly knew and even affirmed in his head that he was a child of God. He knew this. 
But up until that seemingly innocuous moment in the midst of this grueling interview process when this simple question was asked, what he knew in his head had never really massaged its way down into his heart. It was transforming for him. He was a child of the living God. God was a father to him. It transformed his life and became the new lens through which he lived his life as a Christian and very fruitfully served as both a professor and a pastor over the years. Now, I begin with that story because I believe it speaks to an all-too-common experience for those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus. I'm convinced that many of us, if not a majority of us, fail to, in the daily living out of our life, grasp and live in light of this incomprehensibly glorious status that we have as adopted sons and daughters of God. I mean, like Sinclair Ferguson, we know it in our minds, right? We affirm it in our creeds and our statements of faith. We reflect it in our prayers when we say, Our Father. We even sing about it in some of our songs. But all too often, its reality fails to work its way deep into our souls, shaping the way we live our lives. In fact, I would say that many of the issues we struggle with in our lives, in part at least, owe to our failure to to live in light of our adopted status. Think of some of the struggles that are so real to, to most of us. Fear, anxiety, insecurity, sense of purpose and meaning, lack of a bold witness, pursuit of pleasures and idols that this world offers, beckoning us to turn away from Jesus and bank our happiness on those, just to name a few. What's my desire that in our time together this morning, you will be reminded anew of God's adopting love for you, and that you will increasingly allow your life to be shaped by that love. So with that in mind, if you would turn, please, in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, very familiar passage to many of you. And in this passage, we will see that adoption is not merely a nice, heartwarming, feel-good, but peripheral biblical teaching. Rather, adoption is actually central to the story of our salvation. To paraphrase J.I. Packer and John Murray, the theologians, adoption is the climactic blessing of our redemption. Look at Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Now I know it wasn't too long ago that you went through a long series in Galatians. And so I'm trusting that the context here you're pretty familiar with if you're here for that. So I'm not going to take time to, to get into that much, except to say Paul is writing this letter to a church who is being taught and led astray to base their standing before God on their efforts to keep the law. And Paul is saying, no. Our standing before God is always and only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, we kind of have the heart of God's saving work for us in Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 4. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Could sum up those verses with this statement Through adoption, God gives to those He has redeemed a new identity as sons and daughters, and this changes everything. Through adoption for His glory, God gives to those He has redeemed a new identity as sons and daughters, and this changes everything. 
Now, before we go any further, let's define this term that you see there in verse 5, adoption. The underlying word actually means placement as a son. It was borrowed by Paul from the Greco-Roman culture of that day. This was a common practice. Inheritance in the family went through the male son, the male heir. And so if a family, especially a family of prominence, didn't have a male heir in the family to carry on the family name and to manage the family inheritance, then they would practice adoption. They would identify a noble person in their context or community, and they would legally place that young man into the family, though he wasn't a family member by nature, in order to receive the family name and become the family heir. And from that point forward, he would be the heir, and he would one day manage the family inheritance as a son, as though he were a member of that family from the beginning. That's what that word is, how it's used, and Paul saw in it a beautiful picture or metaphor of what God is doing in taking sinners who are enslaved to sin and all its consequences and placing them into his family as a son and, of course, as daughters. Now, the question then begs to be asked, why is it that we would need to be adopted? Why is it that we would need to be placed into God's family in the first place? Well, To answer that question very quickly, let's just take a large step backwards and remind ourselves of the big picture of what's happening in redemptive history. And really, to get a good grasp on this, we need to go all the way back to a period of time that sometimes we refer to as eternity past. Now, when I was a kid, one of the things that used to hurt my brain, literally, was trying to think that of God as not having a beginning. And I'd just sit there and think, wait, he never started. So I'd go back, and God was there, and back, and God. It just hurt my brain. Any of you ever experienced that? I don't think about it now, so it doesn't hurt my brain. I just accept it. God is everlasting, eternal. There never has been a time where God simply hasn't been. He's everlasting to everlasting. And so what that means is, before God created anything, there has always been, every, to use the phrase, moment of time, There's always been a father who immeasurably loved his son. And there's never been a moment in time, all the way back forever in eternity past, when there did not exist a son who is the perfect reflection of the father, co-equal to the father, and the recipient of the father's love. This is God the son, whom we know as Jesus. In some would argue that part of the reason God created human beings was because his love for the eternal son was so great that he decided to overflow that love by creating a race of people, created sons and daughters of God, who would also experience that love as they bore his image in this world. And that's what we see in Genesis. If you look back at Genesis 1.27, it says that there God created man in his image. After his likeness, God created male and female. And then in Genesis 5, it's interesting, he rehearses that fact that God created mankind and male and female in his image after his likeness. And then he goes on and describes how Adam had a son in Adam's image after Adam's likeness. What he's saying is, that Moses is using that phrase in his image after his likeness to describe the idea of a son and a father. See, human beings were originally created to be created sons and daughters of God. That's why in Luke, the Luke genealogy, Luke is described as the son of God. We were created to have a unique relationship with God as a race of people, to have unique privileges and rights as created sons and daughters of God, including enjoying the very presence of God and living in his place, in his land. And we were given unique responsibilities to bear God's image in this world and to fill this world with other image bearers of God as we populate the world. Now, we have a good theology of Sin, And we understand that human beings are fallen and have sinful natures. But sometimes we so emphasize that that we forget the glory and dignity of what it means to be a human being created in the image of God. This was God's 
purpose for us as a race. But then, of course, came Genesis 3. That tragic day when our first parents, Adam and Eve, the original created sons and daughters of God, rebelled against their father's love and design, choosing to pursue the lie of self-autonomy instead. And that plunged all Adam and Eve and all subsequent descendants, all members of the human race, into a condition of alienation and separation from God so that no longer are we born into this world in a condition of being part of God's family, children of God, sons and daughters. We are now outside his family with no hope of changing that on our own. One of the things that you know about adoption, being part of someone's family, is you can't make yourself part of someone's family. As much as you want to be part of someone's family, that's a really cool family, so I'm going to show up on their doorstep every day. I'm going to email them. I'm going to send them Facebook requests. I'm going to uh, put together a little, you know, print out at home adoption certificate. I'm going to try everything I can to, to be part of that family. They call that stalking, actually. You can't make yourself part of God's family either. But the good news is that though God could have justly turned away and let us face the eternal consequences of our rebellion against him, he didn't. No, God had a plan from the beginning, a plan to create that family after all, to after all fill this world with sons and daughters who would bear his image and be in unique relationship with him. And that brings us back to our text, Galatians chapter 4. And I want us to see quickly three things here. First of all, I want you to see that God the Father has taken the initiative for our adoption. It says, when the time came to completion, when the time was right, God the Father, in the context, sent the Son. And this initiative-taking work of God really started much earlier than this, because as we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, in love, he predestined us for adoption. This is incredibly good news. God's adoption of sinners wasn't by happenstance. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't an afterthought. Adoption began in heaven before it ever came down to us on earth. Securing a family of adopted children was on the mind of God since before he even created the world. And it came to pass in the stage of human history according to his perfect timing. You know, sometimes as Christians we can be crippled with a sense of our sin and our brokenness. And in those moments we can wonder, can God still love me? Christian friend, God set his love on you before he even created the world. In love, he marked out the boundaries of your life to ensure that you are part of his family as a son or daughter. You don't need to doubt God's love, even in your darkest moment. He planned for your adoption long ago and initiated it in real time. You know, any human adoption requires planning. There are unplanned pregnancies. In fact, I was a bonus baby. Surprised my parents, but celebrated by them, so they say. Maybe that was too much information. But there's no such thing as an unplanned adoption. There can be an unexpected twist to life that leads you to adopt, but from the moment a family decides to adopt to the moment of adoption, there's a lot of planning and logistics that go into play. So think of redemptive history in the Old Testament as God's working out this marvelous plan of redemption, climaxing here in this incredible statement, when the time came to fulfillment, God the Father acted by sending His Son. The Father planned our salvation and our adoption. God the Son, secondly, secured our, our adoption. God the Son purchased our adoption. Every time Paul uses this phrase adoption, he's tying it inextricably to the person and work of Jesus the Son. Notice verse 4 again. When the fullness of time was come, God sent His Son. This is the unique, one-of-a-kind 
eternal Son. He's not a created Son. He's God the Son in all His eternal glory, who was co-equal with the Father. It was this Son, the forever loved Son, that God sent. Some argue that this is the greatest miracle of God's redemptive work. That the immeasurably glorious God the Son would set aside all of the divine prerogatives to identify with us in our humanity, to literally become an embryo attached to the womb of a frail, sinful human being named Mary. The creator and sustainer of life, sustained by an umbilical cord in the womb. Stunning. God, born of a woman, And that's certainly probably also a reference to the promise in Genesis 3.15 that God would send a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, Satan. But it's also a reference to his humanity, his need to identify us, not just enter into the brokenness of the human condition through what we might call a Christophany, an appearance of Christ on earth, but by actually becoming one of us, fully human and yet still fully God. Hebrews 2 says that in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. He was born of a woman, We're about to celebrate, of course, the Christmas season. But he was also born under the law, which simply means he was born fully obligated to obey the law at every last point. To the smallest degree, as a human being, he entered this world obligated to obey God, heart, mind, soul, and action. Every bit of his being. And of course... The one unique thing about Jesus, our Lord, is that he was tempted in all points like we are, yet he never sinned. After millions of human beings were born into this world, broken and alienated from the Father, under the law but unable to keep the law, here was one who did. He was under the law. This is his act of righteousness, doing for us what we should have but could never do, and that is perfectly please God the Father at all times. And so Jesus is born of a woman, born under the law. And why did he come? Well, here's where it gets really interesting and beautiful. He came, and there's two purpose clauses here that build on each other. The first stated purpose is he came to redeem those who were under the law. Now, the word redeem is a term of liberation, deliverance. It means to set someone free from captivity or enslavement by paying the required price necessary for their freedom. It's a powerful term. And what he's saying is that the Father sent the eternally loved Son into the broken condition as the Redeemer, Deliverer, Liberator to set humans free from their bondage to sin. And that's what that little phrase, the second use of that phrase, under the law, means. Jesus was under the law, and he kept it perfectly. We're under the law and the law condemns us. If you look back just to Galatians 3, verse 13, for all who rely on the works of the, verse 10, I mean, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. So the law stands in judgment and condemnation of it, because we look at the law and we say, I, I can't, I don't, I won't. Impossible. I'm a sinner. I'm a lawbreaker. The law, part of the point of Galatians is to demonstrate that the law wasn't intended to give us spiritual life. It was intended to drive us to Jesus, the source of that life. So we stand under the condemnation of the law, and Jesus came to deliver us from that, to redeem us, to set us free from that. Incredible news. What a Savior he is. Now, how did Jesus do that? Well, there's Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Stunning. Our elder brother, the eternal God, the Son of the universe, forever loved, 
leaves the glory of heaven in what had been the eternal, intimate presence of the Father and the Spirit, penetrates this world, becomes a human being, and then, though he was the only one to ever perfectly obey the law, he takes the curse and judgment as though he failed in our place because that was the price necessary to deliver us. That was the price required to set us free from our bondage to that law. It was our only hope. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood. That's a series of sermons in and of itself. But notice, as glorious as redemption is, and as necessary as it is, it doesn't end there. There's a second, even more ultimate purpose of God sending the Son. He sent the Son to redeem us so that... Here's that second purpose clause. The redemption was for this even greater purpose. So that we, who've been redeemed and set free, might also receive adoption. God's plan to have a family of sons and daughters who enjoy relationship with him, who enjoy the privileges of sonship and bear his image in this world would be accomplished. But first, we must be set free from our captivity. And then having been set free, we can now be placed into the family. I think when I was here a couple of years ago, I said this. But th- through redemption, God sets us free from the bondage of sin. Through justification, he gives us a new legal standing. He declares over us, you are no longer guilty In my eyes, your Redeemer is standing by your side, and on the basis of his work for you, I declare you not guilty. In fact, I see you as righteous before me. But then having given us a new legal identity or standing, he then gives us a new legal identity. He says, and now I declare that you from this day forward shall be known as my son, my daughter. Welcome to the family. It's as though the judge standing behind the desk sees the liberator and our advocate declares us not guilty, takes off his judge's robes, comes out from behind the desk, puts his arm around us and says, now that you are not guilty in my eyes, welcome to the family, son. Welcome to the family, daughter. That's adoption, being placed into God's family with all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities that come with it. Now, the great question then is how? How do we enter into this family? Well, if you look back to chapter 3 in Galatians, he's already told us, and this is really the great point of the book of Galatians, verse 23, Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by what? But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. We come to a place of experiencing adoption and sonship, not through our own efforts, not through our own works, not through earning God's attention and impressing him so he wants us into our family because, wow, he'd make a good son, he'd make a good daughter. By by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Son Jesus. Jesus has secured everything we need to enjoy all the benefits of sonship. And it's when a person recognizing, recognizes that they failed to obey God, and therefore they're, they're not in God's family, but they, they, they need to be, they want to be, they long to be, and Jesus is God the Father's provision for them. And so they place all their trust, all their hope, On him alone. Jesus is enough. And when that happens, we had time to look at chapter 3 in more detail. You would see verse 29. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. That's language referring ultimately to our union with Jesus. When you come to Jesus, the reason you're able to be adopted by the Father is because you are joined to the Son. And all that's the Son's now is yours. In Christ. And then notice verse 28. There is, there, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
You know, when you become a son, a daughter of God, you are now part of a family. You're one with Christ and you're one with fellow brothers and sisters. All the distinctions that tend to separate us in this broken world that causes so much heartache and sorrow and conflict in this world are removed in Christ. We're part of a community, a family, the church. That's why it's so essential that you live out your faith in the context of a church where slave or free, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, gender isn't the issue. The issue is we are Christ's and we are therefore adopted sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters despite all these external things. And so I would encourage you as a church to live out your faith in your sonship and daughtership in the context of this faith community, faithfully serving and loving one another as brothers and sisters. Well, our time is about done, but I want you to notice thirdly, not only did the father plan your adoption, the son achieved or secured your adoption to be experienced and enjoyed through faith in him, but thirdly, the spirit confirms and applies your adoption. Verse 4 Excuse me, verse 6. And because you are sons. I love that. You know, it can be kind of an abstract thing. I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. Really? Is this true? It can be kind of abstract and hard to put our fingers around. So it's like the Spirit says, hey, you are sons. Think of 1 John 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And we are. It's true. We're sons of God. And part of the way we know this is because, verse 6, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. As a seal of our adoption and of our salvation, the spirit of his son is sent into our hearts to live and abide within us. And as part of his work in our hearts, he confirms, Romans 8 puts it this way, he bears witness with us that we are sons of God. And part of the way we see that is that he leads us to cry out to our father, Abba, in the same way that Jesus, our elder brother, cried out to him in the Garden of Gethsemane in his moment of greatest darkness and sorrow and agony before the cross. And what did Jesus cry out in the garden? Abba, Father. And his same spirit in us as we work, as I heard Rob pray earlier, and it's so evident there's a lot of hard things happening in your midst. A lot of folks in your church community who are going through difficult times. And as you bear one another's burdens and weep with those who weep, you who aren't maybe walking through it yourself are feeling the weight of that. And one of the signs that you're a child of God, adopted into his family, that as you go through those seasons of suffering and difficulty, the spirit of Jesus within you cries out within you, Abba, Father, crying out to your Father, viewing the Creator, the King, the Sovereign, the Lord as your Father to seek out grace and strength and help in your time of need. The Spirit is doing that within you as a sign that you are His Son. And so verse 7, you are no longer a slave. This is a statement of fact. It's, this is a, an indicative statement. You are no longer a slave. You've been set free from bondage and enslavement to sin and the law and the evil one in the world. And you are, in fact, a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. An heir of God. This is where it just gets too good to be true. This is where I said earlier, we, we fail to live in light of this reality. We, we live as the proverbial pauper instead of the prince and princesses of God that we are. Look back at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, where we see language similar to this. But it's expanded just a little bit. Starting in verse 15, you did not receive, well, verse 14, all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, excuse me, also heirs, heirs of God 
and co-heirs with Christ. The eternal, majestic, glorious God, the Son, forever beloved by the Father, for whom God has promised all things. We, I mean, I look at myself and how broken and sinful and fallen I am, and I think, but, but I'm your son? I'm a co-heir with Christ? What belongs to him is mine? This is grace, undeserved favor, but it's true. Oh, there's so much more we could say. If you notice there, part of the work of the spirit of adoption is in us is to lead us in our fight against sin as God makes us to increasingly look like one of his children. That's what verse 14 is getting at when he says all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. In the context, he's talking about being led in the fight for sanctification and growth. And that's why 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, as we are gazing on the glory of our Father, the spirit is transforming us from glory to glory into the image of the Excuse me, as we gaze upon the glory of the Son, he's transforming us into that very image. So one of the things that we're doing as a community of brothers and sisters in a church like this is together, we're walking together, urging one another on as the Spirit does this work of sanctification so that each of us increasingly reflects more and more what Jesus is like. And we're never going to do it perfectly, and we're going to fall, and that's why we need to do it in a posture of grace and love and support, but we do it together, together, increasingly as a church and as individuals, reflecting the glory of our elder brother Jesus. Well, since you're in Romans, if I can indulge one extra minute... (laughs) I'm getting the look. Okay, good. Since we're in Romans, notice our experience of adoption is already true, right? We are sons, but it's also not yet. It's one of those tensions, right? Already experienced, but not in its fullest. What we see, the culminating day of redemptive history when God brings to completion his work, at the climax of that is adoption. You notice that in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation. So this broken, fallen creation is groaning under the curse and fall of sin and all the brokenness that we experience. What is it groaning for? It's a surprising. I don't think I'd expect to read this here. It's anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free, redeemed from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption the redemption of our bodies. See, I thought we were adopted. We are. But the best is yet to come. The culminating, climactic moment of adoption is that day when it is revealed who we really are to the glory of God. Redeemed, adopted children of God. And our totality of who we are is brought into alignment in our experience where the totality of our bodies, our souls, our minds are sanctified, glorified, and adopted. We receive our full inheritance forever. That's what's coming. In fact, you could kind of look at the Bible in a way as a big, well, the technical term is inclusio, which means a writer states a theme, writes something, and restates the theme, and everything in between it somehow is related to that theme. The Bible is bookmarked by the creation of sons of God, the fall of sons of God, restoration of sons of God. Look at one more passage with me. Revelation chapter 21. This is where we're all heading. The entire triune God in perfect unity, in perfect love, from before 
creation even happened, has been working and operating to make you, follower of Jesus, part of this. Then I saw, verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the springs of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Here's the climax of everything that God is doing in redemptive history, the new heaven and the new earth, and God from the throne declares, they will be my sons and daughters in Christ the Son. That's where we're heading, folks. That's what God has done. The Father, the Son, the Spirit together. One God, three persons working to achieve this and include you in this. And so when you're tempted to doubt God's love or faithfulness or providence in your life, remember who you are. When you're tempted to be drawn away down the twisted path of sin that all of us are so easily tempted by, remember who you are and where you're heading. When you're tempted to wonder if your life has meaning and value and significance, remember who you are to God's glory and where you're heading. God has adopted us by faith into his family as sons and daughters, and this changes everything. May God massage that deep into our hearts and change our lives, and change your church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. It's hard to even fathom. It's hard to wrap our minds around. We confess that so often we fail to remember to live in light. We doubt you. How, how could you more fully demonstrate the depths of your love for us than what you did to secure our adoption for your glory, and our eternal good. Please imprint this deep into our hearts and may it overflow in our lives and may we extend this same grace to one another and to the people in the world around us. Thank you for your unfailing, unstoppable work that you will complete to create a family in relationship with you, bearing your image, displaying your glory. We're just amazed to be part of it. Lord, if there's anyone in here this morning who hasn't yet come to be part of your family, I pray that even now your spirit would open their eyes to the beauty of what you've, you're offering them. That they would trust that Jesus has secured forgiveness of sins and a place in your family. May they believe in your son. In Jesus' name, amen.